All right, folks, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like for you to turn to John chapter 7. The seventh chapter of John. We are in the midst of a series through the Gospel of John called Meeting Jesus, Getting to Know Jesus. And we're actually entering into what is now the second part of this series. Chapters 1 to 6 was kind of a basic introduction, and we got to know Jesus, and it kind of closed out in chapter 6 with folks really not sure if they want to follow him because of what he was asking. Now we're entering into chapter 7, and the next section is from chapter 7 all the way through the end of chapter 12, and it kind of shifts. We're going to see that today. The story the gospel shifts. How? Because before, in chapters 1 to 6, you saw a little bit of it, but most of it was people really excited about Jesus because of what he was doing. He's what? Healing the lame, letting the blind see, casting out demons, doing awesome things, feeding 5,000, but when we get into chapter 7 now, we're going to see the beginning of, are you ready for this? Hostility. Hostility towards Jesus. Now, that in itself, can I be honest with you? If, if, you're, if you're looking at Jesus' life and you're looking at his teaching and you're looking at what he's doing, how can you be irritated at him? Do you know what I mean? How, how can you be, like, really mad at him? But that's what we're going to see now. We're going to see hostility towards Jesus. We're going to see antagonism towards him from the people. And remember, I told you that there are basically three groups of people in this gospel. There are the followers of Jesus. Now, we're not going to see antagonism from them, okay? But there's the crowd, and from now on, we're going to see antagonism from the crowd. And then there's the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, and there's definitely antagonism towards there, because today you're going to see revealed that at this point now, are you ready for this, they want to kill him. Like, how, how do you get there? Well, we can talk about that as we go through the gospel. It reveals to you why as we go through now, what's the significance of that? Well, it's very significant because I need you to realize this because sometimes we today in our world, our culture, where we're at today in North America, we sometimes in the church get this concept and sometimes we operate that way because we see churches operate this way that somehow if we just do the right things and we say the right things, then everybody's going to love Jesus. They, they don't love Jesus because they don't really see who he is. Well, the problem is, we're going to see in this gospel from this point that they're going to really see who Jesus is, and they're not loving him. They want to get rid of him. And Jesus tells us why. 
In fact, we're going to focus on verses 1 to 9, and it's interesting that the gospel writer starts off with the very first group that's hostile to him. Are you ready for this? It's his own brothers. Jesus' own family is hostile towards him. You say, well, wait a minute. How does he have, ha have brothers? Well, let's remember, let's remind ourselves, he was virgin born of Mary, and she was betrothed to who? Joseph. And the scripture tells us in the other gospels that Joseph did not know her, and that is a euphemism for knowing her sexually until after Jesus was born, and then they had kids. What kind of kids? Well, we know sons, brothers. We know at least two of them from the scripture. James, one of the writers of one of the epistles. Jude is another writer. But we also know from the gospels that Jesus had sisters. And so here he is. He's, he, at this point, Jesus is in his 30s. He's lived in this household with these brothers and they're antagonistic towards him. Now, here's what I want to relieve some of you with, okay? Because it really dawned on me this week. They lived with Jesus. And we're going to see here in the moment that they even acknowledge the things that he's doing. What things? Healing, raising the dead, making the blind to see, the lame to walk, casting out demons. And they still don't believe. It's a heart issue, isn't it? And so what that's going to be from us today from this discussion is they're going to be expressing their unbelief towards him in an antagonistic way and pressing him like, if you say you are who you are, then why aren't you doing it this way? And Jesus comes along and says, I don't operate according to your timetable. I operate according to God's timing. And that's what we're going to see here in this passage today. So look with me at these first nine verses. We're going to see unbelief, and then we're going to see the prerogative of Jesus. And hopefully this will help some of us today. I know it helped me as I was going through this passage. Look at what the writer, John, says in verse 1. Here's what he writes. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not walk in Judea because the Jews or the Jewish officials sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. 
That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. All right, folks, you and I could kind of breeze through these nine verses and see, oh, yeah, we see a little bit of antagonism. But I'm going to bring out some truths to you that are going to help you, especially help you to understand unbelief today. Because the unbelief that's expressed here by the brothers, we still see it today. You maybe are seeing it in your own families. You may be seeing it with your friends. We're going to see that. But then we're going to see where Jesus is on all of that, his prerogative. Okay, so let's take a look, first of all, at the issue of unbelief. I want you to notice with me verses 3 through 5. Three verses here, and then we're going to take it apart for us. Let's look at it again. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here, go into Judea, that your disciples also may see your works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. All right, so I'm going to give you three thoughts on unbelief here that come out of this passage. Here's the first one. Unbelief repeats the same accusations against God. What do you mean the same accusations, George? What are you talking about here? What they're saying is, if you are who you say you are, go show yourself in Judea. Do the same works you're doing here in Galilee. Go down and show who you are. How's that the same accusation? Well, if you think for a moment, it goes back to the very first temptation one of the temptations, in the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Here's what one of the temptations Jesus faced from Satan was. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. In his hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Now here's what the second temptation was. He took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. That's the highest point in the temple. In the temple would be all of the Jews that were in Jerusalem. They would be coming there to worship. He was to throw himself down, have him, quote, be picked up or grabbed by the angels. And everybody would see that and they would all say, wow, it's awesome. That's what Satan was tempting him with. Do you notice what the brothers are saying? You want everybody to believe you're the Messiah? Well, then you go down and you show yourself in Jerusalem to your disciples. You do all the same exact things, and they'll believe you. It's the same, same accusations, same thing being portrayed all the time. You say, George... What do you mean? Does, does that happen today? Yeah. I talk to so many people. There's, a, there's an interesting thing that's happening today. There are people, literally, maybe you know somebody, there are people who are, I, 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 I know people who, who are walking away, and, and when you talk to them, they all say the same thing. 
Really? How's that possible? I know three individuals who do not know each other. And I have talked to them, and they all say the same thing. Why? Because unbelief brings up the same accusations against God all the time. Why? Because unbelief doesn't want to believe. Did you understand what I'm saying? Unbelief doesn't want to believe. It doesn't want to believe there's a God. It doesn't want to believe that, that there's a God who is in charge, who wants to set things right, who wants to do anything. It doesn't want to believe. So the arguments aren't new. They aren't old. In fact, even today, some who would unbelieve will say, if God really is who he is, then why isn't he doing this? Have you heard somebody say that? Why doesn't he stop this? Why isn't he doing something to take care of this as he's the God who creates everything? And so they mock him. So that brings up two other points here. I'm going to bring them in succession. Unbelief questions why Jesus does things. Unbelief says, why did he do this? Usually it's, why didn't he do this? They're saying to him, why are you up here spending your time in Galilee doing all this stuff? Go down to Judea so your disciples can see you. Why are you doing things in secret when you're wanting people to know who you are? That's what they're saying. If you're the Messiah, why would you be laying low when you could be letting everybody know who you are. Now again, they're not telling him this because they believe him. Remember, verse 5 tells you they're saying these things because what? They don't believe. They're antagonistic towards him. And so unbelief questions why Jesus does things. Why are you doing it this way? It doesn't make sense. And let's be honest, in a human standpoint, doesn't make sense, does it? Because typically the way we operate, if you know what you're going to do, what? You tell everybody what you're going to do. And you tell them, join the bandwagon, and you go on. The way Jesus is approaching things is not normal. Here's the next thing I want you to see. Unbelief questions how Jesus does things. The first one is, why does he do it this way? The second one is, how he does it. Because sometimes, let's be honest, the way God does things is really different from what we would do. His whole approach is different. And we don't understand that. How do you know that, George? Well, look at how he chooses people to serve him. He says this to the Corinthians. He chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God does things his own way because it's his own prerogative. But unbelief says, why does he do it that way? How does he do it? It doesn't make any sense. Here's the thing. Ultimately, here's the fourth point. Ultimately, unbelief has decided that it knows better than God. It knows better than God. Here's what I've come to the conclusion about. 
I, it took me a while to get here, but I think I'm finally coming to this place as I deal with people who have become so adamant in their unbelief. I used to think that if I could just get them the right book, because I'm a reader, okay? If you go to my office, you'll see lots of books. You guys know I just wiped out half my library and uh, tried to get you to take those books, and uh, you didn't, so they ended up at Goodwill. So, uh, but I'm a reader. And, and sometimes because when you're a reader, you think everybody else is a reader. But I already know that that's not true. Not everybody's a reader, okay? Unless it's an audio book. They'll listen. If that. And I used to think, well, if I just gave them a book, or if I gave them this video series, or if I did this, if, if they just got enough knowledge, they would understand. Do you, ever, do you ever get that way? If I just gave him enough under, you maybe even said this, man, I've tried talking to my friend about Jesus and he just is refusing. If I could just bring George. Let me just tell you, it ain't going to work. It's going to seem weird. Be uncomfortable. But that's not the issue. I've come to the conclusion that at the heart of unbelief is a heart. It's a heart that doesn't want to believe. And because it doesn't want to believe, it becomes the ultimate authority then. And when you're the ultimate authority, Nobody else can take that place. Because if you have to recognize that there might be another ultimate authority, that puts you on shaky ground. And so it's a choice. So here are Jesus' brothers. Listen, this is weird. Jesus' brothers. They got Jesus in their midst. Holy cow, they got Jesus in their midst. they don't believe is it because they didn't have enough information think about that is it because they didn't have enough information do you not think that they would know that he was born special do you think that was not talked about in their family but they choose not to believe It's because unbelief has decided it knows better. And I think it's interesting that the gospel writer starts out this section with his family because he's setting the tone here for the rest of the book that helps you to understand why they ultimately put him on a cross. And it really goes back to John chapter 1 where he says... He came among his own, but his own, what, rejected him. How much among his own can you get than your own family? Now, let me just stop for a moment and give you some hope. Because God does break through. What do you mean? Well, if you go over to 1 Corinthians 15, which is the chapter concerning the resurrection... Paul begins there by 
discussing the resurrection by listing the people who Jesus appeared to. And he talks about Jesus appearing to Cephas, that's Peter and, and the 11. And then he talks about Jesus appearing to James, the brother of Jesus. So here's a brother who is in this group that's antagonizing him. When Jesus is resurrected, guess who Jesus appears to? James. And did it change his heart? You better believe it because he would become what? The pastor of the Jerusalem church and he would write your New Testament letter, James. There's hope. So don't give up hope. But in the midst of this unbelief, let's get back to our passage. Jesus expresses his prerogative. And so we're going to see some things here that, about how Jesus sees things. Because first of all, can I be honest with you? Let me just say this. We may be shocked by people's unbelief. Aren't you shocked by people's unbelief when it's expressed sometimes? Sometimes I get blown away by people that I thought, thought they were okay, but then you find out they're not. Sometimes I get blown away by people that you were really wanting to see change in their heart, and, and they don't. And I get blown away, and I'm like, man, how can I handle this? Jesus already knows. But I want you to see his prerogative. So notice with me verses 6 through 8. Here's what Jesus says. And it's about this whole issue of him, them mocking him and telling him he needs to go down to Jerusalem and show himself. If you're really who you are, show yourself. Look at what he says here, verse 6 through 8. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I'm not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. All right, so I'm going to give you four things here. So let me give it to you. First of all, Jesus looks at the issue of time differently. Remember I told you unbelief looks at why he does things, how he does things, and ultimately it doesn't want to. So here he is, he's answering their things, and he's saying, look, guys, I see time differently. My time hasn't come, but your time, he says, is always ready. Why? He says, you just operate by whatever comes, and you just respond immediately. But I'm not following that concept. I look at time differently, he says. And the timing of things matter because it has to be according to God's plan. So the first thing he's saying is he's looking at time differently. Can I be honest with you? When you look at, the, look at how things are happening around the world and people are saying, where's God in the midst of this? Why doesn't God take care of this? Why doesn't God deal with this issue? Why doesn't God solve this problem? Somehow we have to come to a place by faith, and it is an issue of faith, isn't it? But saying, okay, God, you see things differently than I do, and you act differently than I do. And so I'm going to trust you as you deal with this in your timing. 
Because again, like he said to the brothers, for you and I, we're always ready. Deal with it now, Jesus. In fact, we go to him in prayer and we're asking him to do something and we want it done yesterday. Like, why am I even here asking about this? You should have taken care of this before. He sees time differently. Here's the second thing I want you to see him. Jesus knows the world hates him. Whoa. Stop for a moment. Think about that. Chapter 7 is beginning here in a moment. Next week we'll see him go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter 7 is beginning to set in motion the series of events that will lead to his dying on the cross for our sins, but not just for our sins, but for the sins of the world, John would say in 1 John. And he's willingly doing that Even though he already knows, are you ready for this? He's not surprised by it. He already knows what? The world hates him. That blows my mind. Why? Okay, because here's the thing. All right. So, okay, so if I... If, if there's somebody in our church... I do, so... I, I don't want to mention names. Sometimes I get in trouble when I mention names, even though I just use them for illustration. All right, let's say Bubba comes to our church, okay? I'll use Bubba. Nobody here is named Bubba. If that's your nickname, I didn't know, okay? Bubba comes to our church, and Bubba has a need, and I can meet that need. I'm going to try and meet that need. I will go, and I will help Bubba out. Now, but if I knew that Bubba had an attitude towards me and Bubba was talking about me behind my back and Bubba was putting me down and Bubba was telling everybody else and I still knew that Bubba had a need. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a human being. Do I want to help Bubba? No. Why would I? Because I'm human. I heard what Bubba said about me. But Jesus, he knows they hate him. And he still goes. And he still sacrifices himself. Doesn't that blow your mind? That's his prerogative. Why do they hate him? Well, he says he knows why. It hates him because he exposes their deeds as evil. Here's what Jesus does. His very presence, his very actions, his very teaching exposes their deeds as evil. Now, when, you, when we say evil, can I stop for a moment? I'm not talking about axe murder or evil. Because, you know, you and I, in our culture, we have this way of 
classifying evil. Okay, so September 11th, 2001, that was evil when the two towers came down. Or this was evil or that. We, 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 we have in our mind that's evil. That's not the definition of evil for Jesus. You wonder what the definition of evil here in the scripture is? Anything contrary to God. Wow, that's pretty open-ended, isn't it? So your little white lie is evil. It's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? The little lie we do to get out of our situation, that's evil. The wrong thought we had, that's evil. He exposes our evil. How does that happen? His very presence exposes it. How do I know that? Think about, think about Peter again. Remember I mentioned Peter? Go to the Gospels, go to Luke. Jesus is coming up to the Sea of Galilee. There he's teaching along the seaside. Peter's in a boat with his buddies. They've been fishing all night. They're tending to their nets. And Jesus wants to be able to be at a vantage point where everybody can hear him. He gets in the boat to do his teaching. And after a while, he says, hey, put out your boat. Oh, master, Peter says, we fished all night and didn't catch anything. And Jesus says, well, cast your net over on the other side. And they did. And they brought up a huge catch that they had to have another boat come alongside and help them bring in. Now here's how Peter responds. Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. Oh, wait a minute now. If you and I were to look at that passage and we would read the narrative there in the gospel, there is nothing that is said by Jesus that points out, here's what you were doing wrong Peter. Why did Peter respond that way? The presence of God was in his midst. And when God shows up, you don't realize real quick how wrong you are. And that's throughout the scripture. Isaiah, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. John, when he sees Jesus high and lifted up in Revelation chapter 1, he falls on his face as dead. Ezekiel, same response. Anytime people meet God in his glory in the scripture, they what? Recognize how what? Sinful they are. See, that's why people hate him. Because it gets back to the heart of unbelief. Unbelief is what? Ultimately wanting to be in charge. They are wanting to say what's right and what's wrong. But God exposes that. Jesus exposes that, so they hate him. So here's what happens. Final thing, he operates according to God's timing. Look at what he says here. Verse 8, you go up to the feast. I am not yet coming up to this feast. For my time is not yet fully come. 
right, so what is he saying here? When he says his time, let's talk about what his time is. His time that he's referencing here is the events that lead to the cross. The time of his, those events that lead to the cross hasn't come yet. I'm not going up to this feast at this moment. Because I do things according to God's timing. You go ahead. I operate on a different timetable. So how does that apply to you and I? First of all, let's talk about the thing we all struggle with. All right? Every single one of us have the same problem. Oh, do you know what my problem is? Uh, trust me, I'm not spying on you. I don't have access to your computer. You know, I'm not a great big hacker that can look with that camera. Don't cover it with a piece of tape. It's not me, okay? But here's the problem we all have. You ready for it? Unbelief. Doubt. <gasps> oh. Yeah. We all struggle with it. And you know when it shows up? When you're in the midst of it and you need God to show up And it looks like he doesn't. Been there? And in that moment, guess what swells up? Unbelief. And guess what we do? We question why Jesus does what he does. We question how Jesus does what he does. Because ultimately, let's get back to it. We want to be in control. We know better. When what the scripture calls us to, and I was just reading through the Psalms again this morning, what the scripture calls us to is what? Trust him in the midst of our difficulty. Even when it seems like our enemies are encompassing us and surrounding us and getting ready to kill us. I will trust in you, Jesus. Because your timing is not my timing. And that's what he calls us to, folks. Faith. Faith. Let me pray for you.